Cool. Good morning, everybody. I think this is it. It is great to have you back in the Making Jesus Known seminar. Um, and if you don't think you're meant to be in the Making Jesus Known seminar, this is now quickly the time to change and get to the seminar you're supposed to be at. Excellent. Um, welcome. Who's been here every single day this week? Oh, wow. You keenies. I love you guys. Well done. You kind of get an, uh, uh, they should get an award for that, shouldn't they? But this morning, I have the privilege of introducing the fabulous Rob Tavet to you. Um, for those of you that haven't met him before, Rob is a local church leader. So he's based like about 20 minutes away from here. So not only has he not camped, he's managed to have a shower at home every day. Oh, a bath, a bath. There you go. And um, Rob is from uh, originally, he is an Essex boy. He's from Colchester in Essex. And tonight apparently is the 80s, 90s night. So I asked about Rob's favorite outfit from when he was like in the 90s. Him and his brother wore, wait for this, matching bright purple shell suits with a fluorescent yellow stripe down the arm. Um, Have you got that for tonight? It's too small now. It's a shame. I would love to have seen it. Anyway, would you please give Rob a warm welcome and a handover? Thanks, Jazz. It was a good look, I have to tell you. Um, so today's seminar is called God Can Do It Again. And basically, I'm going to speak to you today about one of the most remarkable Christians who has ever lived. And I'm going to tell you their story. When you hear this story, you know, you know like when you watch an amazing musician excel at their craft or you watch England win the football, like it's a joy to behold, isn't it? It's exciting. You don't tend to watch it and get depressed because, oh, you're not, I'm not as good at football at them or I'm not as good at that instrument as them. It's just a joy to behold, isn't it? And I guess as you listen to this story, that's what I want us, our reaction to be. I want us to whoop and cheer and go, that is so cool that that happened. That is awesome. What a victory. What a great, what, what a great story. Not go all like, oh, I'm not, uh, I don't think I could ever do that. Okay? So I want, just want to invite us, but also um, I want to encourage us that um, God can do it again. So let me tell you, I'm going to tell you the story of a guy called Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Here's some crazy facts about him. He is history's most widely read preacher. Today, there is more material written by Spurgeon than by any other Christian author, living or dead. The Spurgeons of Sermon make 63 massive volumes. It is the largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. His sermons were printed and sent around the world. By the time he was 31, his sermons were translated into more than 20 languages. This is really cool. One woman was converted by reading a single page of one of Spurgeon's sermons wrapped around some butter that she'd bought. That's cool, isn't it? He typically read six books per week, and his personal library contained 12,000 books. What remains of it now is housed in a special library in Kansas City in the USA. Spurgeon drew to his services um, Prime Minister William Gladstone, members of the royal family, members of parliament, as well as author John Ruskin, Florence Nightingale, and General James Garfield, later president of the United States. He spent most of his life leading one local church, 
first called the New Park Street Chapel, and it had 232 members when he started. Over the next 28 years, 14,460 people were added to the church. It was the largest independent congregation in the world, and it was really the world's very first megachurch. Spurgeon once addressed an audience of 23,654 people without a microphone or any mechanical amplification. That's more than three new days in, in one building. Isn't that nuts? During his lifetime, Spurgeon is estimated to have preached to 10 million people in person, and he often preached 10 times in a week. He met with some other Christian heroes, so Hudson Taylor, the well-known missionary to China, George Muller, the orphanage founder, and famous missionary explorer um, David Livingstone once asked him, how do you manage to do two men's work in a single day? And Spurgeon replied, you have forgotten that there are two of us. It's a good line, isn't it? Spurgeon spoke out so strongly against slavery that American publishers of his sermons began deleting his remarks on the subject and in some cases burning his books on bonfires. Occasionally, Spurgeon asked members of his congregation to attend the next Sunday's service so that newcomers could actually have a seat. During one service, the regular congregation left en masse so that the newcomers waiting outside might get in and the building immediately filled again. And last fact, cabbies would often drive their horse-drawn cabs around the streets of North London every Sunday, shouting over the water, shouting, over the water to Charlie, over the water to Charlie, and everyone knew what they meant, and they could get a cab to go and hear Charles Spurgeon. So, Charles Spurgeon, God can do it again. Let me tell you his story. Well, Charles grew up in Essex, he was born in Colchester, I was born there too, and um, in the, it was in the 19th century. This was during the time of the Victorians. His dad, John, was a shopkeeper. Times were hard, and Charles's dad got into terrible debt. He was unable, his dad, John, was unable to pay his suppliers, and so he was sent to debtor's prison until he could sell his stock and pay everyone back that he owed. To be in debt in that society was a terrible shame, and it meant John was not allowed to attend church or be a member of a church until all his debts were paid off. John was rescued by his brother-in-law who gave him a job in a business that he had. So Charles um, was, was sent away to live with his granddad and he was only one years old at the time and he stayed with his granddad until he was five or six. His granddad had this massive library in his home and Charles devoured many great Christian books. It said that Spurgeon later said that he'd read The Pilgrim's Progress first at age six and went on to read it over a hundred times. Now, um, The Pilgrim's Progress, I don't know if you know, but it's considered to be the world's best-selling book after the Bible. And um, I've got a copy here. Who put up the hand who's been to all of the seminars? That person at the, that, that, walking towards me with your hand in the air. It's yours. Pilgrim's Progress, here you go. Oh, well done. Good catch. I didn't throw that well. So this book, has anyone here read it? Cracking. Well, it's, it's, it's the world's best, they think it's the world's most best read book after the Bible. Spurgeon read it a hundred times. 
And the time that Spurgeon grew up in was a really religious time. Now, some of that was bad. So lots of rituals, lots of kind of emphasis on duty. Um, Not all of the things that people were taught in churches was great. Um, But some of it was good. Like people really cared about God and they cared about eternity. Um, To give you an example, the best-selling children's book at that time was a book called A Token for Children. And that book was basically stories of children becoming Christians before they died. So a lot, of chil- a lot of people died at a young age in that kind of period. And this book was literally stories, like really powerful testimonies of kids getting saved just before they died. Like a really intense read. And, and so that just gives you a kind of a feel for the, the world that Spurgeon lived in. Um, and a lot, a lot of what he got to do is to do with the fact that he was really riding a wave of what God was doing in our nation at the time. Charles was the oldest child in his family, and he would lead weekly devotions in the family home. He'd preach to his brothers and sisters. Um, You know how in our homes, the center of our lounge is the TV, and all the seats point towards the TV in the lounge? Well, in those days, in your second room, they tended to have some chairs and a Bible. That just gives you like a feel for the kind of society that people were living in. It was like a really, really religious Christian time. When Charles was 11, he wrote a magazine for his family, complaining that they'd forgotten to hold their weekly family prayer meeting, and he gave it to them to read. From an early age, though, he experienced tragedy. Four of his brothers and sisters died when he was growing up, and he would have been there at the graveside of each of their funerals. In total, Spurgeon's mother had 17 children. Nine of them died in infancy. Spurgeon's mum was a real woman of prayer. She often prayed for his salvation. She was worried worried for the souls of all of her children. And by the time Charles was a teenager, he was making speeches about his beliefs in school. He was arguing against people being christened. Charles was baptized as an infant when he was, by his grandfather when he was one month old. And when he was 14, he said it was a, bat, like a real mistake that his grandfather had done that. So he was known for like, his big opinions. He was known for being outspoken. And he was also very hardworking. He didn't give much time to play. When Charles Spurgeon was only 10 years old, a visiting missionary said, like, kind of basically gave him a prophetic word and said that the young Spurgeon would one day preach the gospel to thousands and would preach in in a particular church in London, which was the largest church of its kind. And he suggested that when that happened, Spurgeon should choose a particular hymn. Now, what's cool about this is that later came true. Spurgeon did speak in one of the largest churches at this particular church in London, and Spurgeon did choose the song that this guy said when he was 10 years old, you should choose this hymn when this happens. Spurgeon actually got like his first job and moved away from home when he was only 15. He became what they called in those days a pupil teacher. So he did a bit of learning and a bit of teaching at the same time in Newmarket, which is quite far from Colchester, and he was living away from home. Now, here's the big surprise. The really surprising thing is that at this point, Charles wasn't actually a Christian. He was very religious but he didn't really have a living relationship with Jesus. 
And all that changed one winter when Charles was back home um, from his new job. He's 15 years old. He was staying at home with his parents, and he really wanted to go to church one Sunday. Now, the weather was terrible. There was a snowstorm, but that didn't deter Charles, and he headed out. Now, the weather was so bad that he had to opt for... He wasn't able to go to the church he planned to go to. He had to opt for a nearer church. It was almost empty, and the preacher was very heavy, um, had a very heavy accent. And I just want to read to you, this is Spurgeon's autobiography, his description of what happens and what the man said. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and ye be saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There, there was, I thought, a glimpse of hope in the text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But the text says, look unto me. I, he said in his broad Essex accent, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to the God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on ye say, we must make for the Spirit's working. You've no business with that now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he'd gone about that length and managed to spin it out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey this moment now, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. Boom, that was the moment Charles Spurgeon was transformed. And he, he later wrote to his parents begging them to let them get, to let them, him get baptized 
And he also argued with them to join a different church where the preaching was less boring and more Jesus-centered. They eventually said yes to baptism, although they didn't change churches. And he was baptized in the River Lark in Cambridgeshire. He later said about his baptism, my timidity was washed away. Baptism loosed my tongue. And from that day, it has never been quiet. He started teaching the children's Bible studies and was so good that many adults would come along to hear him as well. But what's kind of funny is that he was actually tricked into his first proper sermon when he was 16 years old. There was this wise older Christian who knew he would say no if he asked him directly. So he org- and, he, and he organized the preachers in this area and he sensed the potential that Charles Spurgeon had. So he asked him, and it was carefully worded, to go over to Teversham the next evening for a young man was to preach in a cottage there who was not much used to services and would very likely be glad of company. It was a trick because he sent two people to go and both of them thought the other one was the preacher. And it was only on the journey that Charles had realized what had happened. He tried to get out of it, but his traveling companion insisted. It wasn't a spectacular preach, but Spurgeon was relieved that he got, he got through it without running out of things to say. And afterwards, they came up to him and they said, how old are you? And his reply was, I'm under 60. He quickly got lots of preaching invitations after that, and he got used to walking long distances every Sunday to different churches. Before he was 20, Spurgeon had preached over 600 times. Isn't that nuts? Before he was 20, he'd preached 600 times. When he was just 17 years old, he was asked to lead a church in a village called Water Beach in Cambridgeshire. The church had 40 people. They were pretty broke. They couldn't afford to pay him. And the village at this time was notorious for drunkenness and for robberies. In a few years, it was transformed. Something happened in that church while Spurgeon was leading it. Um, He describes things happening there like the biggest vagabonds of the village were now weeping floods of tears. They couldn't fit in all the people who wanted to come, and they had to, people had to stand outside to listen in through the windows. After two years, the congregation had grown from 40 people to 400 people. And this is really cool. Spurgeon later said that if you did a walk in the evening at a certain time from one side of the village to the other, you would hear the, the, the sound of people singing praise to Jesus in their homes. And he would say there wasn't a point in the village that you could walk at, on summer evenings where you, couldn't, you wouldn't be able to not hear Jesus' families just having like worship time together. Spurgeon's messages were very Jesus-centered with titles like The Redeemer's Tears Over Sinners, Breakfast with Jesus, Jesus Wept. And despite all this success, Spurgeon struggled in quite a few ways. He struggled financially. He had this tendency to depression, and he actually struggled in his spiritual life, writing things in his diary like, how feeble I am. I am not able to keep myself near to God. I'm compelled to acknowledge my own deadness. 
What's quite remarkable about Spurgeon is that he never went to Bible college. He ends up founding a Bible college, but he never went to Bible college himself. And he once applied and had an interview to, see, to get into a Bible college, but the servant girl got confused and she led him into one room on one side of the building and she led the person interviewing him to the other side of the building and they both waited there all day thinking, where's... Well, the other guy thinking, well, where's Charles? And Charles thinking, like, well, where's the guy in the Bible college? And they only found out afterwards when Charles went through to say, oh, he's gone home. He, he, couldn't, he was waiting for you. And Charles later felt God speak to him that actually God had overruled in that moment. Um, and and uh, th- th- this line came to him, Seekest thou great things for thyself, seek them not. And he felt that was God's way of saying, you don't, don't go to Bible college. Spurgeon was invited to speak to a church in London called New Park Street. At this time, London was the largest city in the world. Three million people. It was crammed. And the River Thames at this time was pretty much an open sewer. The new church put Spurgeon up in a horrible guest house in a room the size of a cupboard. And and Spurgeon says the walk to the church was pretty grimy. His first preach went okay. The deacons wanted him back. But some of the congregation didn't like his clothes or his haircut, including his future wife. She disliked his accent. And also she thought he was a bit arrogant. His next sermon there went better, and he was invited to become the pastor for a six-month trial. Spurgeon asked to just come for three months in case they really didn't like him. Well, at this church, he would preach his heart out. He'd often get physically exhausted. It was quite typical that he would need help getting down from the preaching platform. It's really important to remember that in those days, there was no amplification Like Part of being a preacher was just being somebody who could project your voice really well. And in a very short time, something happened in that church. It just started to explode. But also what happened is that quite quickly, Charles became kind of a bit of a celebrity. He was potentially one of the first preachers who ever had to kind of wrestle with, with quite so much fame and attention at such a young age in the press. Um, He got quite a lot of criticism in the press. People would mock him and criticize him for the things that he said. But he also got some people who quite quickly warmed to him. There was a well-known actor and playwright at the time who said he was the most wonderful preacher in the world and said that he would have offered Charles a fortune to have become an actor. And um, he made this prediction that came true. He predicted that Charles' Spurgeon um, sermons would be known everywhere and translated into many languages. Spurgeon was also known for being critical of religious ceremony. He mocked church leaders who had robes and like funny rituals and, um, and set prayers where people would just chant things. He had quite a lot of big opinions about how things should be done in church. And he, and, you know, and he was known for using kind of humor in that. He preached clearly also about hell and about judgment, which is what he got a lot of criticism for. This is one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. Let no one go there unwarned, and unprayed for. 
A few years in, a pandemic broke out in the congregation and, um, and in, the, in, in London, and a lot of people in the church died. Spurgeon completely refused lockdown living. He would frequently risk his own life and his health to go and visit these people who were contagious. Um, in the middle, though, of this tragic period, he also fell in love, and he married Susanna, um, the lady who didn't like his haircut when he first preached at the church. Now, they had funny ways of expressing their love for one another in those days. He took her for dates. Um, they were, these were like group dates with like groups of friends. And um, one day they went to an exhibition at Crystal Palace. Um, while they were in a queue, Spurgeon gave her a book which had a chapter in it on marriage. And he pointed to the advice in the book where it said, Seek a good wife. Think of her and pray for her well. And then he whispered in her ear, so no one else could hear this. He said to her, do you pray for him who is to be your husband? And she says at this moment, her heart was going like this. Well, it, it didn't, it, the suspense didn't last much longer. He told her he loved her and that he wanted to marry her two months later in her grandfather's garden. They got married and Susanna had kind of a quirky nickname for Charles. She would call him Tershartha. Now, it's a bit weird. This is a title used of the Judean governor under the Persian emperor, and it meant your excellency. So that's what she called him. Your excellency, Tershartha. By the age of 21, Spurgeon's sermons were being printed on a weekly basis. His popularity was exploding, and they started to hire larger venues. On the 19th of October, 1856, Spurgeon preached to 12,000 people in a venue called Surrey Gardens Music Hall. It was dangerously full. A staircase collapsed and the people panicked. Someone actually shouted, fire, even though there wasn't a fire. And people started to just flee the building. Seven people were tragically crushed to death. Now, Spurgeon didn't know quite what was going on. And he tried to carry on preaching, not really realizing how da- like quite the extent of what was going on. Eventually, though, there was such a commotion, he felt that he could not go on. And in that moment, the stress got to him, and he actually collapsed himself, and they had to carry him out on a stretcher. Now, after this event, Spurgeon was ruthlessly criticized in the press. No one let him read any of it because he couldn't cope with it. They criticized him for carrying on, for preaching at all, considering the circumstances. And after the tragedy, he had some kind of mental and spiritual breakdown. It's actually said that he was unable to pray, and even the sight of a Bible brought him to tears. A few days later, though, just the name Jesus came into his, his mind and he describes it as like the light broke through, like Jesus, Jesus. And over a period of weeks, he was restored. Now, he was never quite the same man. He was often visibly anxious when he was talking in crowded places. Um, he suffered from periodic attacks of depression when the memories would come back. And he actually said himself, if that had happened again to him, he thinks it would have completely finished him off as a preacher. Amazingly, though, just a month later, he preached again, um, over a month later, but he preached again in the same venue, but this time with many more safety measures in place and at a different time. Eventually, the church that he led got their own building. Spurgeon insisted that 
the congregation's new building, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, should use Greek architecture because the New Testament was written in Greek. Well, this one decision has greatly influenced subsequent church architecture throughout the world. There you go. Bit of a strange one, but... When he was 23, there was a national day of prayer and fasting. Now, that's cool, isn't it? Like, to live in a time where there are national days of prayer and fasting, where, like, the, the king of England, the queen of England, they'd call these days, and people would come to church and they would pray. And this, this event was at Crystal Palace. Many major dignitaries attended, probably the royal family, politicians, celebrities, and this was the place where 23,654 people came. Now, we think that that is the largest indoor congregation that has ever gathered to hear a preacher. A really cool thing happened the day before. Charles Spurgeon went there to test the acoustics, and he stood in the place where he was going to preach, and he just shouted a Bible verse. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And there was a worker high up in the rafters who heard this, and it was like they couldn't shake it. They went home, and they could just keep hearing, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And um, they became converted to Christ as a result. That's cool, isn't it? Like even the rehearsal for the preach, people came to Jesus. Spurgeon was like really bold and he actually used the occasion to call people to repentance. Here's a quote. My friends, I am inclined to think that our class sins are the most grievous. Behold this day the sins of the rich. How the poor are oppressed. How are the needy downtrodden. In many a place, the average wage of men is far below their value to their masters. In this age, there is many a man who looks upon his fellows as only stepping stones to wealth. You great men of the earth, there is a God. And that God has said he executes righteousness and judgment for all the oppressed. And yet the seamstress in her garret and yet the tailor in his den, and yet the artisan in his crowded factory, and yet the servants who earn your wealth, who have to groan under your oppression, shall get the ear of God, and he will listen to them, and he will visit you. Hear ye the rod, for this rod falls on you. And then he called these people to repent. Now, what an intense moment. Like, 23,000 people, like, major celebrities, the prime minister probably, like a ton of other people there, and there's all these rich people there, and Spurgeon takes that moment to say to those people, like, you're oppressing the poor, you need to repent, but Jesus can forgive you, like, turn to them. I love that. Despite this massive profile and fame, Charles remained committed and focused on his local church ministry. For the first 12 to 14 years, he interviewed every single person who wanted to join the church. And then his brother started to help him with this. On one day, apparently, he interviewed 40 people who wanted to join the church. He had two kids, twin boys. They later testified that he was a great dad. His church family also loved him, and they even built him and his family a house. Tragically, though, Susanna, his wife, became an invalid at age 33, and could seldom attend her, her husband's services after that. Now, we're not quite sure what the medical problem was, 
but we know she had surgeries. Spurgeon wasn't just a preacher, he was also an activist. He had 17 homes built for the poor. He founded an orphanage. This kind of was a bit fun. It began in a prayer meeting. So they basically had a prayer meeting and they just said, let's ask God for some new work to do and ask him for the resources to do it. So they basically prayed, Lord, give us a new work to do and give us the resources to do it. And a few days later, a letter arrived offering £20,000, which is £1.3 million in our day, towards the training and education of a few orphan boys. So they did it. They built an orphanage with the money. He founded a a Bible college where they called him governor. And the Bible college was... was, um, was great. It trained a number of Afro-Americans who actually took the gospel to unreached parts of Africa. In all, Spurgeon helped to plant 187 churches. In later years, Spurgeon had quite a few health problems that got worse. Um, He suffered with gout, arthritis, kidney problems that would often leave him in a lot of pain. He continued to battle depression and times of being extremely low. To help with this, in the winter months, But from the age of 35, he would have holidays in the south of France, staying in an area popular as a retreat for Christian leaders. Prayer was a huge part of his life and his church. There was a fun story that a group of ministers once called uh, on him one day to see the church where he was preaching. And he showed them the big sanctuary, and then he offered them to show them his boiler room. And they were like, no, we don't, we're not interested in seeing the boiler room. And he insisted, no, you've got to come and see my boiler room. And he led them into the basement. And they found in the basement a hundred, of, a hundred people in prayer. And he said, this, he said with a smile, is my boiler room. Whenever Spurgeon was asked the secret of his ministry, he always replied, my people, pray for me. Spurgeon's wife was too unwell to join him on his times of rest in the south of France, but she did in 1891 when Spurgeon was 58. While he was there, Spurgeon's health worsened and he died. One person who was staying at the hotel, not knowing that Spurgeon had died, later claimed to see a company of angels visit the hotel a few hours earlier. Spurgeon's body was brought back to London and thousands attended multiple funeral services with people lining the streets. Over his coffin was the Bible verse that the ordinary preacher has based his message on when he had led Spurgeon to Christ. Look unto me and be saved. Spurgeon battled pride in his life. He was one of the, like one of the first kind of celebrity preachers. But on a number of occasions, we see his heart to, for the Lord to be glorified. Once, when he was speaking to a large congregation in a massive hall, his voice started to fail, and he had like this one last effort to make with his voice before it gave out, and he said this, Let my name perish, but let Christ's name last forever. Jesus, 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 crown him Lord of all. You will not hear me say anything else. These are my last words in Exeter Hall for this time. Jesus, 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 crown him Lord of all. God can do it again. Do we want him to? Do we want him to? We can all, we're not all Spurgeons, are we? 
lot of people say he was a one-off. But we've all got our part to play in, in seeing a church where people like Spurgeon can, can live and get raised up. And you've, you, can, you can play a part in that. Do you remember what Spurgeon said? My people pray for me. That's the start. So I'd just like to invite us to just call on the name of the Lord to do it again. Let's just have a little prayer meeting. So why don't we just stand where we are and let's just cry out to God and ask him to so move in our nation that the most popular children's book is a book telling people, te- like calling children to get saved. Let's pray that we, that we might live in a nation where people have a Bible in a room and, they, and in the evenings they sit in and read it. Let's pray to God that we might live in a nation and we might live in days where we could walk down our street and we would hear people singing praises to Jesus. Do we want that? Come on, let's just lift our voices and cry out to him. Jazz and I just really feel like the Lord is wanting to birth prayer meetings out of this seminar session today. You know, those of you that are praying together, like right now, like, why don't you do that once a week? Like, what's stopping you? I don't know, like, what matters more? What could you do that would be more significant? So I just want to encourage you. I feel like there's going to be, a, there's like a call to, to birth prayer meetings. There's an invitation from God over you today to say, we're going to pray. And Jazz has got a picture about this. Just as Rob was um, speaking, I, do you remember a few weeks ago when we were celebrating the Platinum Jubilee and right across we had um, beacons being lit right across the nation, didn't we? And, um, and I would, <laughs> I'd literally saw you guys as like fires in your, in your huddles, as it were. And whether you, could, would, you would take it upon yourselves to go home and be like the fires in your town, in your community, in your street, whether you commit to saying, you know, before youth, on a, whenever you meet on a Sunday evening, we're going to get together half an hour earlier just to pray for our community, just to pray together, or whether you do it at school, wherever, but just to kind of make that commitment amongst yourselves, saying, when can we do this? When can we start praying? When can we pray for revival for the people that we meet? Go for it. Amen. Amen. So we just want, to, just want to close with an encouragement. Prayer isn't a spiritual gift. It's not a spiritual gift. It's for everyone. Prayer is the way you get the gifts, because we ask for gifts, but it's for everyone. I just want to encourage everyone here, you can pray. Your Father in heaven, you know, your whispers are heard in the ear of your Father in heaven. And I'd love to pray for you And when I finish, I'd just love to encourage you, if you feel so moved, there's no pressure, why don't you even get out your your like diary, your your phone, and plan a time when you're going to pray together next. So let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you for everyone here. Lord, we've all heard an amazing we've heard an amazing story. We've heard crazy things, but you can do it again. And Lord. I just pray that you'd start fires of intercession here that would carry on burning until our nation is changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, um, feel free to hang around like, if you want to just chat. But before you go, I just encourage you just to, if you feel moved, get that date in the diary. Um, tomorrow we're here for our last seminar. We're going to be interviewing people who've gone to the nations. It will be great to see you.